invite you to take your Bibles this morning open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 844, page 844. And as you make your way there, I just have a couple things to share with you uh, by way of missions. First, we have a, a very nice thank you from Faith Carpenter. Uh, Faith sent us a little thank you, says, Horton Baptist Church, thank you so much for allowing me to present to you about my mission trip and for your generosity in giving toward it. I'm also so thankful to have a church family that I know will be praying as I go to Southeast Asia. Your gift will allow me to take the gospel to a place where few people have heard it before. I'm so excited to see how God will work this summer. Thank you. Sincerely, Faith Carpenter. And so Faith is going to be leaving here in a few weeks, I believe around the 18th or 19th of May, and uh, be heading to Southeast Asia for several, several weeks. And so keep praying for Faith, and we're excited to see how God uses that in her life. And then one other update for you uh, for, uh, by way of Ross and Piper Charlton. We just had them here not too long ago, and as they shared their hearts uh, for the people over in Central Asia, uh, as I had interaction and Pastor James had interaction with them, and I'm sure you could tell that they missed being there and ministering. Obviously, certain circumstances forced them out of that area, and they were wondering what their next steps were. And uh, they have concluded that their time with Missionary Aviation Fellowship uh, has come to a close. And they've written this letter uh, to their supporting churches and individuals. It says, Dear Team Charlton, for many months now we've been praying, waiting, praying, discussing, and praying about what could be next in our MAF story. Since leaving Central Asia, we knew that it would be a very difficult process for MAF and our team to return. After six months, that still seems to be the case. And with that in mind, we looked into the possibility of something short-term or serving in another setting. But as we prayed about this, we seemed to be feeling a large silence from him on those direction. Him, meaning God. That silence feels as though it has now turned into a redirection to something else. Even though we are not sure what is next just yet, we have confidence that he does. and We trust he's already smiling as he ponders our future joy. So we will do our best to love him more as we look to him for that time when he wants to reveal it. We are so grateful for the ways we have seen his glory on this journey with you. Thank you for climbing mountains with us and partnering with us through many valleys. Our 10 years with MIF comes to a close with so much hope that as we have served him together, it will not be wasted. You have blessed us with more than we can say. Thank you for serving with us. In his faithful love, Ross, Piper, Sophia, and Simon. And I have had a few correspondences with Ross. There is uh, nothing inappropriate, no means or reasons for them to step down apart from just the Lord's leading. And so pray for Ross and Piper and family as they transition. They're going to be wrapping up their ministry with MAF at uh, the beginning of June. And uh, it's been neat to see how God has used them. And they're not sure what God has for them in the future, but they're seeking to follow him. And what an example for all of us of trusting as the Lord guides and directs us. We may not know what it may be, but to faithfully follow him. So pray for the Charltons as, uh, as they make that transition and uh, step down from full-time ministry in that capacity and pray for God to continue to lead them. Let's pray for them, for faith, for our time in the Word this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sensitivity of Ross and Piper and family and for faith as she heads off this summer. Lord, may we have that same desire to follow you wherever you would have us. Lord, in whatever direction that may be, Lord, that we would submit ourselves wholly to you and to your leading. Lord, sometimes we don't know necessarily what that is. Lord, I pray that you would 
Build in us a faith, a trust in you that though we may not know what is four or five steps down the road, you do, and you're already there. And God, as we come to your word this morning, as we see Jesus interacting with his disciples and specifically with Peter, Peter has a mindset of what he thinks should happen, but that is not your plan. And as Jesus calls Peter and the disciples to follow him as he sees fit, may we do so as well. Lord, help us now as we come to your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. If you found your way to Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 33 this morning. Mark chapter 8, 27 through verse 33. Follow along as I read. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Excuse me, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of the most dangerous things that we can do in our life is to assume. <laughs> Have you ever assumed something and it was wrong? Whether it was what someone was thinking, whether it was something had been taken care of. It's one of the fears of a pastor. You assume everything is set up ready to go. And whether that's sinful in our human flesh, because we're a little bit of control freaks sometimes, or maybe we're just hoping, right? Assuming that something had been taken care of. One of the worst things you can assume as a pastor is that the baptistry is filled and the water has been heated. I think one of the times in Mason City when we were in transition between senior pastors, uh, we were going to have a baptism. And I think somebody mentioned, well, we can turn on the water and do this. And, and okay, great. And as a pastor, if somebody else is willing to help out, that's, that's awesome. And it hit me like 9.30 on Saturday night. Oh, I wonder if the baptistry's filled. Oh no, I wonder if the heater's on because nobody likes getting in a cold baptistry. Oh, I, should just, I should just go over and check. We're a very similar situation. We lived about the same distance, maybe, maybe a little bit closer than we even do now uh, to, to the church in Mason City. And I remember walking over and sure enough, that individual who had mentioned something had forgotten. The baptistry was bone dry at 9.30 on Saturday night. Thankfully, the pump works pretty quickly. So I turned it on and turned the heater on ready to go Sunday morning. Assuming things can be dangerous, something has been taken care of, or you think you know how something works and you don't. Assuming can get us into trouble. When we think we know how something should be taken care of, or we think something's going to happen just how we think it's going to happen. In this passage, as we interact with Peter and Jesus in this confession, which is very familiar, I think, to many of us, we see here how Peter assumes something about Jesus and his mission, but yet how his assumption gets him into trouble, and his assumption is not at all what is going to happen. 
Peter makes a wonderful confession of who Jesus is, but his assumption about Jesus' work reveals how much he still has to learn. It does not make sense to Peter, or even to our minds, that the one who is sent from God, the Messiah, has come to suffer and to die. But that's exactly what Jesus tells us. And our big idea this morning from this passage is this, is that the identity of the Messiah as suffering servant contradicts the expectation or assumption of man. The identity of the Messiah as suffering servant contradicts the expectation of man. In Mark's gospel, we've been talking about this. Jesus is being declared and presented as the suffering servant king. And I love what Pastor James said this morning, the servant king. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? You have a king and you have a servant. And those two are are generally opposed to each other. But here in Jesus, they come together. And we see this perhaps in no better way than in this interaction with the disciples. And Mark has been showing us how Jesus is the one who has the kingdom authority. Think of these first eight chapters. Think of all the miracles we've talked about and all the healings and all the casting out of demons and the authoritative teaching, right? All the way back to those beginning chapters, the the crowds saw Jesus and they marveled because he taught with one who had authority. All the way back to Mark chapter one, verse one. How does Mark begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. All the way back to verse one, he's demonstrating who Jesus is, that he's the son of God. And in verse 14 and 15, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now as we come to this section, there's a major shift. There's a major shift in Mark's writing. There are roughly 16 chapters, 16 and a few verses here in Mark's gospel. And we're basically in the very center of his gospel. And really at this point, there's a shift. If you can kind of think of it, we've been following the rising action, the miracles, the healings, the casting out of demons. And we've come to this point where the disciples who have been witness to all these things, in a sense, make this confession that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And now from here, we see how the falling action follows this, how Jesus is going to keep teaching, but yet the suffering servant is going to suffer and die. We see a shift from interacting with the crowds to more teaching and persecution by the religious leaders in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And it comes to this point of the identity of Peter interacting with Jesus. Throughout all of this, Jesus has sought to control the narrative about who he is, right? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't don't go back to the village. Why? Because the people want a Messiah who's going to come and overthrow Rome, right? They want somebody who's going to come and and just conquer and make everything perfect and get rid of the enemies and make life exactly how they want it to. They have an assumption about what the Messiah is going to do. The Jewish people wanted this political and military hero. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were longing for. 
But as Peter rightly confesses Jesus as the Messiah, he terribly misses the point that the Messiah has not come as this conquering military and political hero, but rather a suffering servant. So let's look together here at Peter's right confession and his wrong assumption about Jesus and what that means for us. First off, Peter's right confession. Peter's right confession in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a town uh, that was named after Caesar. Obviously, you can tell that, Caesarea, Caesar there. And also, after Philip, Philippi. Uh, Philip Tetrarch, one of the uh, descendants of Herod the Great. So this city is a city full of Roman transplants. It's a very pagan area. And they're on this way to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus asks his disciples. They're walking along the road, and Jesus starts this conversation. Maybe you do this when you're in the car to pass the time. You have discussion questions. You listen to something. You talk about something. And Jesus asks his disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? Jesus is keeping his ear to the ground. He wants to know what the crowds are saying about him because there's been a lot of interaction with the people, right? Crowds of 5,000 and 4,000, more than likely more than that. And Jesus asks his disciples, not what they think, but what do the crowds say? What, What do the people say about me? Who do they think I am? Who do they think I am? This question will reveal a lot about the understanding of the disciples, but also of the crowds. He asks what others say about him, and they answer this. They say, John the Baptist. Some people think that just as Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected, right? This goes back a few chapters to Herod, when Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. And he was a little nervous because he didn't treat John the Baptist the best. In fact, he cut off his head. <laughs> he might have been a little nervous. Some people are saying, well, this is just John the Baptist resurrected. This is, he, he's just like John the Baptist. He's a messenger from God. Some people say, they say in verse 28, that he's Elijah. Well, why would they say Elijah? Well, Elijah was one of two people in the Old Testament not to die, Right? Elijah was a great prophet of God. He, he battled with the prophets of Baal and calling down fire from heaven, yet he was a man, says in James, with a personality like ours, where he still had episodes of, of lacking faith. But yet God took Elijah up in the whirlwind, right? If you remember that, uh, the interaction with Elijah and Elisha, And so Elijah never died, and he was the mighty prophet of God. If you ask anyone who was a Jew from the first century, who were the two mightiest prophets? They would probably say Moses and Elijah. Those two. They were the two mightiest prophets of God. And so Elijah has this understanding that he is going to come back and be this witness, be this testifier of the power of God before the Messiah comes back. And so some people say this is Elijah. And this is interesting because in just a few verses, we're going to see Jesus interact with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
but Jesus is not Elijah. And, but they say, others say, well, he's one of the prophets. He's another prophet like those in the Old Testament that spoke on behalf of God. They were heralds. They were mouthpieces for God. If you look at all three of those, the people aren't far off, right? John the Baptist, he was sent from God. He was used by God to declare the coming of the Messiah. You have Elijah who was used by God in mighty powerful ways. And then you have the prophets. All three of these categories are not far off from who Jesus actually is, right? They are servants of the Lord. They're being used by him to proclaim the Lord's will, to do miracles, to demonstrate God's power. But yet, they fall short. It's like they're the off-brand, <laughs> right? You buy the off-brand, it's good, but it's just not quite the same as the name brand. I'm very thankful Bethany keeps the pastor stocked with a few uh, treats in one of the drawers in my office throughout the week as uh, from time to time we need a little sustenance. And one time she brought, uh, she bought off-brand Pop-Tarts. They were fine. They were good. They did the job. But they just weren't quite the same, right? They just kind of fell short. And then the next time I opened up the drawer, ah, like angels trumpeting from heaven, they were the cinnamon and brown sugar Pop-Tarts. I really got a lot of work done that week. I can tell you that much. These are just shadows of who Jesus actually is. The prophets and Elijah and John the Baptist. They were pointing to something more. And while Jesus does what these people do, he does it in a separate and distinct and greater way. So the people are seeing but dimly, just not quite getting the whole picture. But then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 29, and he says this, says, Mark says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, you've told me what the general public thinks, but who do you think? You are the 12 men who've been with me almost night and day for more than likely a year by now. You have seen me do miracle after miracle. You've heard me teach. You've heard me explain things to you. You've been confused. You've had lacking of faith. But yet, it's almost as if this is like a midterm. Okay, at this point, what have you learned? Who do you think I am? And Peter answered him. Now, did Peter speak up because he's bold and brash and that's Peter? Maybe Peter spoke up because he's the spokesperson of the disciples. We don't necessarily know, but more than likely, Peter spoke on behalf of everyone who was there. And Peter was never one to shy away from giving an answer. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, the other gospel accounts flush out more of this conversation, but Mark is trying to communica communicate clearly and succinctly who Jesus is. In Matthew, we read, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and even Jesus' response to Peter is more fleshed out. He says, correct, God from heaven has shown this to you, Peter. But here, all we read is this, is that you are the Christ. While God has opened up Peter's eyes, Peter also saw with his own eyes the miracles and the teaching. And in a sense, he's putting it together. And through the help of God, he has this glimpse of who Jesus actually is. He has this moment of clarity. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. This word Christ, Christos, we say Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can kind of get 
the idea in our minds that that's his last name. <laughs> that's not his last name. It's a title. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Literally, Jesus the Anointed One. That's what the word Christ means. Messiah or Anointed One. It's one who has been set apart for service to the Lord. This idea of anointed is all throughout the Old Testament. Most of the kings were anointed with oil or with the Spirit, demonstrating that they were set apart for God's service. The, the prophets were anointed ones. Some people were anointed for special responsibilities. The two guys who helped build the tabernacle, they were anointed with a special um, ability to serve the Lord through their craftsmanship. Even Cyrus, the king of Persia, is referred to in Isaiah 45, I think, as the Lord's anointed because he was used by God to bring the people back out of exile back into the land. So this term anointed is used often and it describes someone who is set apart directly for God's service as God's tool, God's instrument. But here, it's understood that this use of the Messiah or the anointed one is the greatest use of that term. This is the one who is going to come and make things right. Isaiah is full of these prophecies of the crooked made straight and the, the lion and the lamb and the child sitting next to the, the, the hole of the snake. This reversal of the curse and, and this uh, kingdom language of things being put back as they ought to be. This is all going to be done through the Lord's anointed, through the Messiah. And as Peter says, you are the Christ, he understands him to be this one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, he says in the other gospel account. This is who Jesus is. And Peter was right. Peter had a right confession of Jesus. That he was the Messiah. He was not a Messiah. He was not one of, uh, he was not just an anointed individual being used by God. He was the anointed one. He is the culmination of all these things. He is the greatest prophet. He is the final priest and he is the eternal king. This is who Jesus is. And Peter, with a moment of clarity, sees this. This is also the same Peter who was in the boat discussing where they were going to get food because they only had one bread, one piece of bread, right? We're going to get bread, Lord. We're hungry. Hey, you remember that miracle I just did? Or the one before that? Or the time that they witnessed him do all these miracles. He's casting out of demons. Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter sees him and declares him as such. What a wonderful confession. Verse 30, and we see this here. He says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the strongest and most emphatic way Jesus could say this. Other times it says, uh, and he told them not to tell anyone, talking about these other statements like this, or he charged them not to go back into the town, but to go on their way. Here, the word strictly is this strong emphasis that they are to tell absolutely no one. Lips zipped, throw away the key, right? Do not tell anyone. Well, why? Well, because Jesus 
is the Messiah. He is the Lord's anointed, but he is not coming according to man's expectation. The Jews wanted, like I said, a military and political leader to overthrow Rome, to do away with their enemies, and usher in this, uh, this time of prosperity for the nation. They were all focused on the outward material things when Jesus has come to deal with the heart. And so he tells them, don't tell anyone who I am because I don't want them to get false ideas because their expectations are going to be, uh, are going to falter because I'm not come to fulfill their expectations. And we're going to see this. So Peter makes this right confession about who Jesus is. But now we see his wrong assumption in verses 31 through 33. So Peter makes this confession and Jesus starts to teach then. It says, and he began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the son of man may suffer many things. I love that term son of man. I always got confused. Why would Jesus call himself the son of man? He's God, right? The son of God, that's the title he should use. But the son of man is a wonderful title and it has a lot of Bible connections. Has a lot of Bible connections. In Daniel 7, as Daniel has the vision of the throne room of God, he sees the Ancient of Days, which is a cool name for God the Father, the Ancient of Days seated on his throne, right? And his, his robe fills the whole throne room. And who else does he see? He sees one coming as the Son of Man who the Lord is going to use and who is going to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. And he uses that term and it points back to Daniel 7, which reminds us that Jesus is going to be over all the nations of the earth. And not only that, Jesus is, yes, the son of God, but he's also fully man. He is a full human nature. He is 100% human, along with being 100% God. Two natures in one person. Hard to understand. A lot of smarter people have I have tried to describe it, but it's true. Truly God, truly man in one person. And just as Jesus is the son of God, he's the son of man. He is, just as Adam was created, so was Jesus fully human. And just as Adam failed, Jesus will not. Romans 5, just through one's man, one man's trespass, sin entered into the entire world and to all people and to all men, right? Through one man's disobedience came sin. Through one man's obedience came salvation. Jesus is this son of man, this, this one who's going to fulfill the role that Adam failed in. This is this term, son of man. And he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Jesus starts to teach about what his ministry as the Messiah will look like. And it's not one of being a conqueror. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. Suffer many things. And what are those things that he will suffer? He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. 
Jesus as the Messiah is going to be rejected by those who should welcome him. The religious leaders of the day are so blinded by their own sin and their own pride and their own expectations of who the Messiah should be and what he should do that they are going to reject the true Messiah. And Jesus will suffer. And not only will he be rejected, but he will be killed. Imagine this. This is the first time the disciples have had any inkling of what Jesus is walking towards. And at this point, if you were a disciple, would you take a step back and think, I backed the wrong horse, <laughs> right? Here's Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah. I've seen him do amazing things. This is going to be great. He's going to be killed? What? Because in our human minds, being killed is, is defeat. And not only that, but he will be raised three days later? that would be confusing to the disciples but look what mark says verse 32 and he said this plainly he said it clear as day there is no hidden meaning there is no speaking in parable or illustration he said it plainly he said i'm gonna suffer i'm gonna die and i'm gonna be raised again this is the first instance the disciples would be hearing about the death burial and resurrection of jesus in this clear and open manner. And they're going to hear it a few more times. But here we see Jesus' true mission come to light as the suffering servant king. He has not come to conquer, but he has come to go to the cross. He said this plainly. Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You've been following this man for almost a year now. You've seen him do amazing things. And you are probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? What does he mean he's going to die? And Peter, good old Peter, makes amazing confession and almost within the same breath sticks his foot in his mouth. Verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is the same word used by Jesus when he speaks to the storms and when he speaks to the demons. <laughs> Except Peter tries to do it to Jesus. Doesn't work out so well for Peter. He pulls Jesus aside. <laughs> Jesus, here, yeah, come here, come here, come here. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a little crazy talk. You're, you're not going to die. We, we're, I got a sword. I'm really good with it. We can rustle up some more volunteers. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We got this. He rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus do? It says he looked around and saw his disciples and he rebuked Peter. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, some people say, well, Peter was, was um, uh, indwelt with Satan at that moment or he had an unclean spirit. I don't, I don't think that's what the context lends itself to. I think through this confession of Peter who rightly confesses Jesus as the Messiah, I think this term, get behind me, Satan, references an enemy of God. Satan is the ultimate enemy of God. And so Jesus uses this phrase to describe someone who's his enemy. So in a sense, he's saying, hey, listen, if you don't like what I'm saying, and you're standing in the way of God's plan, you're just as good as Satan. You're my enemy. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, my adversary or enemy. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's assumption about Jesus' ministry is completely false. 
It's completely off. It's completely wrong. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, but the ministry of the Messiah is still fuzzy in the mind of Peter. And Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, your mind is not set on the things of God, but on earthly things. This is the same language from Colossians 3, 1 to 4, when Paul says, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For that's where your life is, right? Hidden with Christ. We're to set our minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Set your mind on eternal things, not on temporary things. Peter's mind was set on the temporary material thing. Fighting the religious leaders, overthrowing Rome, bringing in prosperity in a material way to the Jews rather than securing eternal spiritual victory. And his mind was set on the things of man. One author said this, Jesus teaches service instead of domination and sacrifice instead of conquest. This is how true salvation will be achieved and how the kingdom of God will be inaugurated. Though Peter has correctly discerned Jesus' messianic identity, he has yet to learn the suffering role of the cross. Peter made a wonderful confession of Christ, yet his assumptions about him were completely off. So what does this mean for us as we look at these verses and as Peter's confession and his wrong assumption? Well, first off, we see Peter's confession and we need to echo it. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the true son of God, the true son of man, born of the virgin, crucified, dead, buried, raised again, ascended, seated on his right hand of his father who is coming again. Jesus is all that he says he is, all that he's done, all that the gospel writers say, Jesus is it. He is the yes and the amen, the fulfillment of all the promises and the one who's going to come and set things right. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. It's all about him. But he works according to his plan and not ours. All that Jesus has done all that he will do is pointing to this fact that he is the Messiah and his identity is clearly seen and proclaimed. Jesus is not who we think he is. Jesus is not different to me than he is to you. Yes, there might be different aspects of Jesus's personality and his character and his attributes. Oh, I love his love. I love his mercy. I love his justice. I love his, his boldness. All those things, yes, but we do not decide who Jesus is. Jesus is who he is. I put this quote on my Facebook page as it's been rolling around in my mind all week from a commentator. And he says this, says the tendency to create Jesus in our own image is a danger still with us. Our perceptions of Jesus are inevitably shaped by our felt needs, what we think we need or what we want. The wealth and prosperity gospel claims that Jesus is there to make us personally happy and financially successful. There's a proclivity to ignore or pass over those passages that call for a renunciation of wealth or sacrifice for the kingdom. Those who despise others out of racial prejudice or nationalistic pride tend to pick up on biblical passages about the judgment of the wicked, but ignore Jesus' calls to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Like Peter, all of us need to hear Jesus' rebuke of our self-promoting perceptions of the Messiah and submit ourselves to his authority and lordship. Self-promotion versus self-sacrifice. We want a Jesus is that, that's going to promote our needs and our wants rather than submitting ourselves to who he is and what he's done and what he said. 
Jesus is the Messiah. And secondly, the way of the Messiah is one of humility, service, and sacrifice. What caused Peter to speak out so brashly? So confidently, it was the fact that Jesus would suffer and die, that he would be persecuted. Yet this was clearly foretold in the Old Testament. It's why we read from Isaiah 53. Natural man, human man, sees humility and service and sacrifice as weakness when it is not. You ask somebody from the world who is not a believer, they look at power and strength and authority and a commanding presence as something to be garnered and something to to work at and how to control a room and make people do what you want. And Jesus says the complete opposite. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. To look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Though Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not think godliness or being God was something to be grasped or hung onto, but rather he humbled himself, coming in the form of a servant, taking on humanity and dying, and not only being dying, but dying on the cross. But what is the result of the humility in Philippians 2? So that when he dies and when he has suffered and when he is raised again, that God has given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, on earth, above the earth, and under earth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, through the glory of God the Father. Humility and service and sacrifice are the way of the gospel. They're the way of Christ. And it's what he calls us to. Not self-promotion, not self-pride, but rather humble service and sacrifice for the cause of Christ. He will be reviled. He will be rejected. But this is what God calls him to do. And in his suffering of the cross, Jesus is glorified and raised up. So Jesus is the Messiah. We need to see him as he is, not according to what we want. And as he is Messiah, he is one, or his ministry is one of humility, service, and sacrifice. We are called to emulate as his followers. Let us not assume we know who Jesus is or what he is like. And let us not assume that we all know Jesus, but let us proclaim the Messiah. If you are not trusting as Christ today, today is the day of salvation for you to state that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And if you do know him, may your life be characterized as the Messiah, as one of service, of sacrifice, and humility. For it's not about us, but it's about him. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning and the encouragement and the example, good and wrong, good and bad, from Peter. Lord, may we boldly confess Christ as the Messiah and may we humbly submit ourselves to his plan for our lives, that we would humbly serve and sacrifice and submit ourselves to your plan. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in your son's name.